Morning, church family. Morning. <laughs> so, just for clarity, if you're acting like a 13-year-old, that doesn't mean you qualify to come for the youth to, to do that. So, <clears throat> anyway, I'm sure they'll have good food. They always do. <laughs> ah, mercy. Hey, that's uh, man. Was the worship and the spirit of God moving or what? This uh, during worship time. So. Hopefully you don't get the sniffles too much here. Hey, if you're here for the very first time, we welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus. And just so blessed that you're here personally and in those online, welcome. And uh, what we're going to do here is we're going to start off by reading a scripture together. So please stand and let us read the scripture aloud together. The scripture comes out of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen meaning, so be it. Father, we thank you for your word that we can actually come together and read together with in unity for our love for you, our love for one another. And I pray, Lord, by the power of your spirit, you would speak to our hearts as we open up your word. You've prepared our hearts. You've opened our ears. May we hear what you have by your spirit this morning. And may you change the way we think by your reading of your word, will transform the way we think and see things. May we see them with biblical view now. Your view, not the worldly view, not our own view, but how you see things. Not only in our lives, but in this world. Go before us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Please open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. We will take the first 14 verses of chapter 11. And we will continue in the parathetical section of the scripture here. Which is a kind of a pause, um, a stop the action, let's fill in some of the... The story here that's taking place before we pick back up in the movement of the story. And it's during this this interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets that we find this and where we're at today. We started in Revelation chapter 10, if you were with us last week. 
We continue here in this first part of 11 in that same interlude, the same pause to bring clarity. And if sometimes you have to understand, remember, there's a sequential or chronological method here in the scriptures. We've gone from the six seals that leads right into the seven, sorry, seven seals leads right into the seven trumpet. But we see here, eventually we're going to get into the seventh bowls. And as we take a look at this, and in between the, the seals to the trumpets and the trumpets per se into the bowls, we find these interludes to bring in some clarity on some of the characters and the situation or place that's taking the, in our story. Here is one of those times we will be introduced to some two interesting characters. We've already been introduced to some characters called the 144,000 Jewish virgin males that God used in the first three and a half years of the tribulation to spread the good news, the gospel, to this world. There are two other interesting characters, the two witnesses that we will read today, who are during that same period of time. We do not know if the two witnesses was the first to come on the scene, and then the 144,000, they were together or one before the other. I have a tendency to believe that God brought the two witnesses first, that bringing on the 144, ushering in the 144,000 to bring this evangelical movement, the greatest revival ever taking place. Why? Because of the love of God for the Jewish nation, he is going to send out his people, these Two Jewish people that we will see in witnessing, I believe. We'll talk about that. The 144,000 Jewish males to reach the world. To be a light for the fallen world at that time. Because it's very, very dark and very, very um, wicked in these times. Why? Because the church has been raptured out. You, goodness. I know it's you. I'm speaking of you. You are goodness. The Spirit of God living inside you are the goodness, the light in this fallen world that we have. And imagine all of you goodness out of here. It brings a level of depth and darkness unless you've been into some part of the world where there is an absence of Christianity, absence of Christ believers. Go to other countries that are banding and will kill you if you stand for Christ. There's a darkness that comes over that. You see now in the news the wickedness is coming against God's people. The atrocities of the level of the darkness of a heart. The scripture is clear that you and I, the heart is so wicked who is to know it. And you don't even know how bad your heart can be unless it's been governed by God. Boundaries of some morality. But when you take that all away, you absence of God, you see it playing out firsthand in the news today. Something you, you go, I can't even imagine that. How can that be? Because you are not in that depths of darkness. But what we see and what's happened will be day-to-day -day norm. Look at the streets of Chicago, Detroit. Forget Israel. Forget, the, forget Hamas. Forget the, the Muslim come down through. and to, to, Forget that. Just look at it in our own streets today. And the, the, the absence of God. 
And so we pick up our story here in Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to talk about the temple of God. We're going to talk about the two witnesses. We're going to talk about the grace of God and how he in these last, last efforts before here, the, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, that's it. I believe we're up to that three and a half. And once the, the, once the temple has been defiled, that rebuilt temple, we're going to find that when God says the people need to scatter, they need to run to the wilderness because the Antichrist is absolutely going to go full fudge here. <laughs> that's it. That's it. So we find that then I was given, John is saying, I was given a reed, like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, staying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So John is tasked, he has a purpose. At this point right here, we, this angel, this mighty angel that God sent, says and gives instructions what he needs to do. John needs you to see this here. Because here in chapter 11, we will find us at that halfway point in the seven-year tribulation, I believe. I believe John is instructed to measure the temple, the altar, the altar being the Holy of Holies, including the area where the Jewish people worship in the rebuilt uh, religious temple that will take place during that first three and a half years of the tribulation. Because there is no temple now. You look over there, you're seeing a, a, a Muslim mosque. That is not the temple. Many people think it's the temple. It's not the temple. But we in the scripture know that there's going to be a rebuilt temple. What is that going to be look like? God has already designed. We'll talk a little bit more of that in, in detail. But he's asked to take a reed at that time, about 10 to 12 feet long of these reeds that would grow in the, the Red Sea and other areas. And they would take these rods and they used it almost like a yardstick. For those, if you know what a yardstick is, if you're too young. But back in the day, we used to use these wooden subjects. These it probably was a little longer than the, the yardstick. But we would use these things. Yes, we do. And including in there, we find that these, this, this part, for some reason, God is asking through this angel to John to measure, which means in the scripture, his authority, oversight of the situation going on here. Where do we see these measurements in the scriptures before? Well, the first time I'll mention here is Zechariah chapter 2. It's a few, one of the many, a few biblical examples of measuring. And here a man is measuring Jerusalem, a scene that evidently showed God's coming judgment on the city prior. Go measure Jerusalem. Then the judgment came. Then we see in Revelation chapter 21, when we get there, the new Jerusalem will be measured. We see in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 43, there's an extended passage where the temple of God is measured. The temple of Ezekiel is best understood as the temple of the millennium era or the millennium earth. And the temple here that we're about to talk about in Revelation chapter 11 is absolutely a, a different temple that will be built by the Antichrist that is not built by God, and it goes against God. 
The millennial earth, the Ezekiel one, is built by God for the purpose of God. The one that we speak here in chapter 11 is not. So make sure you have that clarity here. But he says, rise and measure the temple of God. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the idea of that measurement communicates that protection or preservation or ownership or he gets to do what he wants to do. Habakkuk is another example that comes to my mind. If you, if you think about Habakkuk's prophecy, he stood and measured the earth there in Habakkuk 3.6. And then the idea was that the Lord owned the earth and could do with it as he pleased. Whatever he wants to do, he gets to do. And when this temple is measured, it shows that God knows its very every dimension and understanding of what he's going to do with that temple. Why? Because God is in charge. If we could get that simple in our minds many times, if God is in charge, it would really help many of us to get through those struggles much quicker when we think we can wrestle this and make sure we make things happen in our lives. You're not in control. Especially as a child of God, you should not be in control. You want the Lord to be in control and direct every step, every step of your life. The temple of God is a literal, an identity of a temple. It's a specific physical material, and it's an important manner to understand what this temple is. Let me go through the temples very quickly here, hopefully, so that you can bring understanding of how many temples there have been. The first there was a tabernacle designed by God and built under the leadership of Moses. It, 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 at least four times in the Old Testament, it says that the tabernacle was built according to the pattern that God gave Moses. It was an image of what it was taking place in heaven. We see that in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9. And the idea was that twice again in the New Testament... Acts 7.44 and Hebrews 8.5, again, God gave Moses the pattern for building the tabernacle. God never asked us to do something without giving some guidance or direction or some, some parameters of how to live. The tabernacle was the temple, so to speak, the very first one. It lasted about 500 years. And they would put up that tent, take the tent down. They would move with God across the, 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 the wilderness and the promise and, and the smoke and the, and the fire or the cloud and the fire would guide them. And, and it's just amazing when you go back and read the Old Testament. And it wasn't just a raggedy old tent. Probably today, if you put it in terms of what the wood and the, and the materials and everything was fixed out, it, we're talking million dollar tent here. It's not a cheap tent. But it was nothing like the temples that will be built. So the very first one here, 500-year-old tent that we call the tabernacle, which was technically the first temple. And then when the reign of King David came along, because that 500, 500 years lasted between Moses to the son of Solomon. But in that between there, King David said, wait a minute. God is dwelling in a tent, and I'm sitting in a palace here? I think we, I, we need to build something grander for God to dwell in than the tent. Something permanent. 
So when he sat there with the right heart to want a desire to, to serve God and to, to, to build something for God, God said to him, no, David, you're not able to build the, the temple for me because you're a man of war. And God wanted a man of peace to build his temple. So then this man, the man of peace, Solomon, his son, comes on the scene. And David's son, in the reign of Solomon, a magnificent temple was built. It was referred to Solomon's temple, Solomon's temple. And people will call that the very first temple. However, don't forget, even as you study the scriptures, look back even in 1 Chronicles 29.2. We find that even though Solomon built the temple... David did all the work and, and getting all the materials and everything put together. Solomon just basically put it together. But all the elements and all the hard work leading up to was David's work behind the scenes. And Solomon's temple stood about 410 years until what? The Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Then there was a time... No temple for about 70 years. Then came what we call the second temple, which was built in 516 B.C. under the leadership of Ezra and Zerubbabel. When did that take place? After they were freed from Babylonian exile, they were able to come back and rebuild the temple that was destroyed. They didn't have the resources that Solomon had. They were a much humbler approach to what they could build with what, what they had. But even though it was humbler, that temple stood longer than Solomon's. It, it, it stood for 585 years. Then the third temple came on the scene. The third temple was built in the last hundred years of the second temple. And, and that was based upon Herod the Great have a visionary to take and have a remodel. It's like you see on TV today. Look at that house. It's running down. It's barely there. I have a vision. We can build on remodel and add a couple of floors and do this and that. Nothing new. They did it back then. It was just called the temple. And it was called the Herod's temple. And it was grand. It was massive. It was so beautiful. We could, it was, it just, it just, it was eye-capturing from, it set on a high hill and everyone coming up to Jerusalem could see this beautiful structure, which stood for more than 450 years before Herod come onto the scene and making these great improvements, if you want to call it. And this is the temple that Jesus and the apostles that we read in the New Testament, this is the temple that they stared at. This is the temple that Jesus went in and taught. This is where they went to. This is the temple, if you remember the, this, the story, where they, like, the apostles like, man, this is incredible. This is an incredible temple. And Jesus responds to them and says, hey, this temple's coming down. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Now, we went to Israel. We saw the foundation of some of those original things. They were, they're just massive. They weren't supposed to, to, to destroy. The Romans were not to, to, supposed to destroy that temple. 
But God said <laughs> he had other plans. He had to fulfill a prophecy. And so a fire took place, and it got so hot and melted all the gold, and it seeped down and into the cracks in between the rocks. And what happened? The Roman soldiers said, we're removing every single one of these rocks and push them down in the Kindred Valley because we're getting to the gold. That's how God got it to be brought down. The only part that somewhat stayed intact was what we refer to as the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. That's the only part that you in, in Jerusalem today and you see on TV where the Jews, the Orthodox Jews are coming to the wall. That's really the upper portion of not even the main part of it is still intact. So we look at these temples, we see how magnificent they are. We see that the fact that now we see this temple, the Herod's temple being destroyed. When did that get destroyed? By the Romans? By the command of Titus? It happened in A.D. 70. And this temple was already gone by the time John was writing the book of Revelation on the island of Padmos. This temple was gone. He wrote the, this book around 90-95 A.D. And so when we take a look at this, however, I do not believe that there will be two more temples, right? I do believe, I should say, I do believe there's two more temples after this, this, this temple. The first one, a restored one, which we'll read about here in chapter 11. And it's a temple that will be built based upon a peace plan that will take place in those times. When does that take place? We don't know for a fact, but this is where I lean toward. I believe when the rapture of the church happens, chaos in this world will be incredible. Especially in the United States. We will become nothing. I really no power whatsoever. And we see in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we see this confederation of, these, of, of, of about five Russia and, and Iran and Turkey and, 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 and in the southern part of Sudan and Libya. They're going to form this coalition and they're going to come against Israel. And this, they're going to get wiped out. God is literally going to wipe those people out. They're going to, seven out of every, of every eight soldiers will be completely killed. So the mighty Russian army is coming down. Iran is coming down. Turkey's coming down. Libya's coming up. Sudan's coming up. Seven out of eight will be destroyed by God. Can you imagine the humbling process of that? That is when Satan is going to take a man and empower him, we call the Antichrist, and he is going to bring some will bring a peace plan and everyone's going to love them because every, all this chaos is going on. People are missing. People are dying. All these things are going to be taking place. And I believe in one of that, that peace plan is that we will allow you to build your temple again to the Jews. Now, some of you are going to say, that's impossible. No, because God's word is true. <laughs> Regardless of what you think. So we see that this first this next restored temple after Herod's is a one that's going to bring about. We see it in Daniel 9. Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know the scriptures that talks about a time with a temple that's going to be built by the Antichrist, not by God. And the Antichrist is going to come in halfway through that three and a half, seven year period of time, three and a half. He's going to walk into the Holy of Holies, I believe. 
right into the temple. He's going to take a seat, and it's going to be called the abomination of desolation. He's going to bring something in there and be demand to be worshipped by the Jews and everyone in the world. That's when the Jews' eyes open up to the truth of who they are. Because remember, the Jews don't believe that the Messiah is coming as, of, of, as, as, as a man who is God. Jesus, that's why they completely do not agree with that. They just think the Messiah is coming to be a world leader, be someone who's going to be their king, who's going to rule and reign for them and control like a political leader. So when someone comes on the scene like the Antichrist, who has the solutions, has the power, people are going to gravitate and listen and be led by this man. They're going to believe it's the, that's the Messiah. Until the abomination of desolation when he defiles the rebuilt temple. That's when they realize they've been following the Antichrist and not God. Now it's interesting. As Christians, we have mixed feelings about this temple. Some people go, oh, excited, are they about to build the temple? No, this is not a good temple for you and I. If you see any signs there's a temple, that means we're going home. So I guess that could be excitement. But I have, no, I have no desire to see the rebuilt temple so that we watch people idolize it and glorify it. No, 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 no. But it's exciting to see the desire to build the temple in Jerusalem. Because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. But at the same time, think about the grieving aspect of this from God's perspective. Because it's not of God. And the rebuilding of this temple means that the Jews were going to start sacrificing to God. You and I have to understand when Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross for your sins... It is finished. No more sacrifice. He took the sacrifice. So with the rebuilt temple and the sacrifices starting up, that's a, it's a slap in God's face of his son dying on the cross. of no value to people. The second temple that we will see is that millennial temple on earth that we speak of, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48. That's very controversial for many. You, you wrestle with that. You read the scripture. You go through that. Because when you read about that, that temple, it is built by God for the purpose of God. And when he builds something and it's for his purpose, it will not no abomination is going to come into that temple. But this one we're talking about today in chapter 11 is. See, it is more clear that this is the temple here in chapter 11 that must be on this earth for the fulfillment of what Daniel and Jesus and Paul spoke of regarding the abomination of desolation. The prophet Daniel told us the Antichrist, the beast... The godless man ruling over an evil government system will break his covenant with the Jewish people, bringing sacrifice and offerings to an end. And the Antichrist 
will defile the temple by setting up an abomination in there. We make it very clear in the scripture of Daniel. Go back to chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12. You'll read those things through and you will see. And he will be demanding to worship. He's, that he's God. He's, he's in control. Jesus said to look for an abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, which would be the pivotal sign of the season of God's great wrath, the great tribulation, which is the last three and a half years. Where do we see that? Matthew 24. Paul told us that the Antichrist would sit in the temple of God, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. See, these, I give these scriptures to you because it's true and it will happen. So if you're out there listening and, and, and surfing the net and they're telling you something different, go back to the scripture. Understand the scripture. So I take the most simplest explanation of all these passages. It's a Jewish temple built by Antichrist to deceive the God's people just to bring peace in that area so that he can rule and reign. And it will sit on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It will be rebuilt. And there should be a sign out there somewhere saying, coming soon. Because it's coming soon. Now, the temple of God, it is a temple that will be rebuilt and be standing in Jerusalem during this first three and a half years of tribulation. And in fact, today there are Jewish people very interested in rebuilding the temple. Each time we've, I've gone back to Israel, there is a, a temple institute and then others that are out there. It'll show you all the utensils now. that have, When I went in 2005, they were just having a couple of things built. And this last time when Kathleen and I went, there was many more and, and others who are showing pictures of all the utensils that are needed for the sacrificing and to, to do um, this temple activity. They're actually training up young priests to be able to know how to properly sacrifice the animals. Now, and with the animal activists, I think it's going to be a little difficult. But, you, but I always have to keep it in mind. It's going to be so dark and so twisted in those days. I don't think it's going to be a problem that people are going to see this happen. But under, understand, today, the religious even... But most of Israel is a secular... A, Society, except for a small group of Orthodox Jews that really are very, very much into the understanding of the Old Testament, the scriptures. Most of Israel are very secular, non-religious, or some form of religious. It's like, it's like I call the Bible Belt today. When I was growing up, I heard the Bible Belt. I thought everyone was a new religion and knew who God was in the South. And then I come to realize after you grow, you're like, no, that's just in word only. They, they go as an activity, as a social gathering. It's something you've always done. You just go to church with grandma and grandpa because they told you you had to go. And then when they, they passed on, there's mom and dad. Maybe a lot, would let you get out of it, but they still kind of went. But they really didn't know the scripture. You really didn't. It was just a, it's just a figure. It's, a, just a, it's just a facade in today's world today. You think, oh, that's... The Western society, the United States, is a Christian society. 
Do you understand that's not true? Majority of people do not want anything to do with Christianity Christ. They have other forms of religions and other things. One of the things is Satanism is rising. All these other occultic things are arising, fringes that are coming. But true Christianity, biblical Christianity, is not going well at all. So there's people out there in Jerusalem that are making plans for this to happen because it will happen. But again, understand, Christians can be get excited about rebuilt of the temple. I do not. Because I don't believe I'm going to see it. Not from home. <laughs> from this view. But we understand where the finished work of sacrifice was taking place. And that is on the cross by our Savior. Don't let us miss that point. And do not get caught up into these other things that come along the way. There's a scripture in John 5.43 as a warning to all Orthodox Jews. Anyone who wants the temple rebuilt. It says, I have come in my Father's name and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Don't let that be you if you're sitting there today and you don't know Jesus. Be very careful who you're, who you're turning to. Be very careful who you're listening to. Because the world is, and Satan and the demonic forces are leading you away from Christ. They'll never move you and encourage you to go to Christ. So anything or anyone you're listening to doesn't draw you to Christ by faith and faith alone, you should stop listening to them. You should stop, you should stop listening to them. Because it's only by faith and faith alone, no more, no less, for you and I to be saved and have the surety of eternal life and the forgiveness of sin. There is no other way. So we see here, they're going to get deceived, and it's going to bring us right into that three and a half. Now, let's get to verse two. <laughs> we got through verse one. We're doing good here. We'll finish in a couple hours. Hang on there. Only good thing for you is I have to catch an airplane here very quickly, so I better finish up. Verse two. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city Underfoot for 42 months. 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days that we'll see also. What does that mean? I, I, I should have hindsight. I've got pulled up a picture of the Temple Mount for you. That would probably be a visual, would have probably been good for you. But I encourage you to go look at the Temple Mount. But when you look at that mosque, that dome mosque there that we see, uh, there on that, it's, it's, it's called the Islamic Dome of the Rock Shrine. Many the Muslims believe that's where the temple sat, or the, yeah, the temple sat, and so they built it on there so that the, the Jews could not have their temple built. But over the years in this excavation and other things and measurements, they found that I, and I agree with that, even back in 2005, it, when I was able to go up on the, of the mount, go see the shrine, see the place, lay it out, 
they believe, and I believe as, as well as if you look at many of the facts, the actual temple placement, it was north of that dome. Which would allow them, when they measure that out, and it's pretty cool. There's a guy that we watch, Amir, that uh, uh, there's some things that he's right there, Jewish believer, and he has some key things, really very, very, very cool, that shows in the measurements of how the temple, because remember, the temple's not that big. It's probably, a, it's probably around a 2,500 square foot house that we would have today. That's not a very big structure of the schematics that were told what the size is supposed to be. So it has room to sit there, but what happens is you have the Holy of Holies, the outer uh, area of that, the holy place where the, the, incense, the table of incense, the table of showbread, the, 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 the candle, and, and then you had the outer court where you had people that were gathering to there, they had the women's court, but then there was this outer, outer court, the Gentile court. That sits right where the dome is today. So, again, we don't know for a fact, but I lean toward, perhaps this is reason why we see in verse 2 that he, John, was not to measure the outer, out the court, to leave out the court which is outside of the temple is because it was given to the Gentiles. That place where that dome is, is that outer court. It is the, where that's, the outer court will need not be measured. Why? Because the non-believers, the Islam, those who are going to be using will be trampling all over that place, but it will not affect the new temple that will be built. It's interesting. When the Romans conquered Jerusalem in AD 70, they destroyed the city completely and all the foundations. So when they all assumed what was happening, that they, the Islams came in and took over, it's over 1,400 years, I think, now that that dome has been sitting there. They didn't know where the eastern gate was because the gate that they placed in the upper walls that were rebuilt was not the original east gate that people entered in to come up into the temple. But a guy, I can't remember the guy's name, in excavation found the original eastern gate lower underground in the lower part where the true foundation of the, of the temple was. That's why one of those landmarks, along with this flat rock that's sitting in the north, which is the bedrock, and you line those all up, that's what I believe the temple will be able to be built without destroying that dome. And the Jews and the Muslims will be able to dwell together during that period of time because the Antichrist will use that as a leverage. But here it's very clear, those outside of, in the Gentiles, of, of the holy city, the holy city being Jerusalem, will tread underfoot for a period of 42 months, which is 1,260 days or three and a half years. I think that takes place the last three and a half years because the Antichrist is just going to go havoc and across the land after those first three and a half years of supposed peace that he was going to bring. You go back, Daniel chapter 11 describes what will take place. So Revelation chapter 12, when we get to that, we'll talk about that. Matthew 24, at the end of 24, Look at those scriptures and you will bring them together. Read them together. It's amazing the picture that you will see. Verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses. Witnesses, a word here is martyr. 
and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's not comfortable. But think about this one verse right here. Two witnesses are coming on the scene, this first part of the seven-year tribulation, by God to give them what? Power. These are two powerful witnesses. Empowered by God to witness for God to the people who are left behind. To those who rejected Christ and now they're in the seven year period of time of absolute hell on earth. The wrath of God coming down. Darkness ruling. Evilness is happening. And out of God's grace, he sends two witnesses and empowers them with the Holy Spirit to witness, to bring them to Christ. Don't forget that. That God's grace, even all that rejection, and he took the church out, he's still going to send two witnesses empowered by him to sit there outside of that, right there in Jerusalem, to witness and to bring the good news, the gospel of who Jesus Christ is. And they're clothed in sackcloth. Why is that? Well, because we know that sackcloth just demonstrates a mourning, a sadness, a grieving that's taking place. It's distress, it's humiliation, it's sorrow. It's bringing a, a picture of the Old Testament prophets calling the nation of Israel to repentance. So he sends two witnesses to bring the nation of Israel and others who will listen, come to repentance. And it's these two that's going to witness. The Lord will use two witnesses in Jerusalem to perform miracles and to proclaim the gospel message of salvation in Christ. For three and a half years, for 1,260 days, can you go out and preach the gospel 1,260 days? Without the power of the Holy Spirit, no, you cannot. But these men will preach nonstop because the time is short. Because the last three and a half days, the great tribulation, God's final wrath, the bowls are coming, the wrath is coming. See, the character of this ministry is prophetic. They will be prophesied. They will preach, proclaim, demonstrate repentance through this sackcloth clothing as a demonstration, yes. But they have an effective ministry. They will be so empowered by the Holy Spirit with the message. What message? Well, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. It's the testimony of Jesus. Worship God is what they're going to say. It's going to be for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about Jesus. It's about Jesus now and it's about Jesus during the seven year period tribulation as well. And it'll be about Jesus when he comes back and we come with him in the second coming. So go back and read Revelation 19.10. When we get there, go ahead and read ahead. But the two witnesses indeed served with power. God's power, the Holy Spirit power. During 1,260 days of antagonism and evilness of this world coming against the two of them. Some people say, oh, I feel like the weight of the world is out. You are not the two witnesses and the whole world of evilness is going to come after you. You're worried about your workplace and sharing the fact that you know Jesus and you're waiting for a response to them. You know Jesus, you're a Bible thumper. You think that's persecution. 
You know nothing compared to the persecution these two will experience. But notice this beautiful thing here. These two powerful witnesses in their sackcloth attire just studded right out. Is calling the nation of Israel and the people who are living to come to repentance. Come to the saving grace and faith in Jesus Christ. And be saved. To have eternal life. My brothers and sisters, friends, we, we have that what, calling on our life today with the Holy Spirit living within us. We're calling as a church is to be a light and a call to his biblical truth. Matthew 28 says, go therefore and make disciples. That's not just for my calling. That's your calling too, you know. Start with your family. Start with your family. Start with your friends. Start with people who are around you every day. Live for Christ. Don't let it be just words. Let it be demonstration of your life. And as they watch your life and empowered by the Spirit of God that lives within you, it will draw people to Christ. Not to you, but to Christ. <clears throat> Acts 1.28 But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and to all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Is that describing you and me? Do we even have a desire to do that? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That should be our message. That's going to be the two witnesses' message, is that it's all about the crucifixion and who Jesus Christ is. We are called in the ministry to proclaim and to teach the God's truth. To know it, to learn it, and to teach it. The warn of the judgment, sharing the gospel, calling all people to Christ for salvation. That is what God has called us to do. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. What does that mean here? Well, you've heard me say this many times. To understand Revelation, it always brings in the Old Testament to support an understanding and clarity of what Revelation's about. So here, these two references of olive trees and lampstands takes you back to Zechariah chapter 4. And when you look at that, you see these two witnesses had this unique continual empowerment from the Holy Spirit. As shown in Zechariah's olive trees and oil lamp picture there in Zechariah chapter 4. In the passage of Zechariah, its first application was with these two men we see in that story, and that is Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. They were called to rebuild the temple. They were called to do something that they could not do apart with the empowerment of God to do it. They were going to be witnesses, just as the two witnesses were raised up to, to be lampstands and witnesses for God. There, empowered by the olive oil, which means the Holy Spirit, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. 
These two witnesses here in Revelation are to also need the power of the Holy Spirit to be witness and empowered to do the work of God. If we will be witnesses, we must have something to witness. What is it that we're witnessing to people next to you? It's your own personal account with Jesus Christ. Your testimony is what you're witnessing. When you watch and see people are hurting, you say, I used to be you. I did what you did. I lived like you lived. I was just self-destructive just like you. I'm watching in your life and you're crying out because you have tried everything in your power from drugs to alcohol to porn to, to you name everything. To get rich quick. To You've tried to fill your life with all kinds of relationships and you're still empty. Because the more you think about yourself, the more miserable you become. And you have not been able to solve that. You're even self-destructing yourself in so many ways and you say, I don't know how to get out of this. You have through your own testimony to witness to that person and say, the power of Jesus Christ changed my life. And you can see my life, examine my life, watch my life. Be what my old life, the old man versus the new man. It is completely different. It's I'm a different, I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. But you can see the changes taking place. And the love of Christ is pouring through your life. The fruit that they will experience from your life will be your testimony. It's the love of Christ. Many people will not share the gospel because you are playing this cardinal life. You got one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. You know you're saved, but you're still living like the world in so many ways and you're just ravaged in your mind. Your soul is not at peace. You can't convince me of it. Why? Because the Bible tells us you cannot have his peace when you're living like the world, a carnal life. It's, it's a miserable life. And so you won't share the gospel with anyone because you don't have the witness of a changed life because you won't let the Spirit of God change you. Because you still like love the world too much. We're supposed to have a light touch of this world, my brothers and sisters. You want every other relationship, but the most important relationship on a daily basis is with Christ. That's where it needs to be if you want transformation in your life. And when you have been transformed and empowered, and you're walking in the spirit and truth, you cannot contain the ability to share the gospel when God brings people in your life. Because that's exactly what happens. When you're walking in truth and spirit, he brings you people, and you're like, whoa, where, how did that come up? How did that question, how did that conversation happen? That was an opportunity. I mean, you're like, you're constantly, could constantly share the good news with someone. Are you looking? <laughs> are you what? Are you looking for the opportunity? Do you even pray and ask for that? Lord, I'm going to the store. I can't wait to, I can't wait to talk to someone. Who are you going to bring? 
We're going to the holidays. We're going to go see our loving family. Lord, give opportunities for me to share the gospel, what God's doing in my life. That's what's happening here. But notice this doesn't come easy for them as as olive trees empowered by the Holy Spirit and, and lampstands being light for Christ here. Notice what happens in verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. So when they come up here to think they're going to take, all this evil is going to take these two out, fire comes out. Don't ask me how that happened. They're doing all kinds of miracle things, but fire and, and, and the language is true, it is the word for fire, comes out of their mouth and devours them. Hello? You don't want to mess with these two. You can see the strategies and the, and the military all going, how are we going to take these guys out? God is protecting them. No, no one's going to touch their life. Even though everyone around is trying to harm them. And if they ever, anyone who tries to harm them, they will be killed in this manner. Why? Because persecution will come against those who are preaching the gospel. These two witnesses have special protection from God. And it's similar to Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. But notice in verse 6. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power from God to shut the rain off. No rain. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all the plagues as often as they desired. These two witnesses have the power to bring drought and plagues. That's power. That is power. So when you see these words in our language here and we're reading they and these and them, the ancient Greek word in the grammar very clear, these two witnesses in this passage is a masculine gendered language here. These two witnesses are two men. Do not believe some of the people out there thinking these are women. So who are these two? (laughs) I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us the names. Just two witnesses. But as you study the scriptures, you can probably give a good sense of what they are. I know where I lean toward. The Old Testament, two witnesses were required for acceptable legal testimony to secure conviction against someone. You couldn't come around and say, hey, he did this. You'd have to have two or more witnesses. How appropriate that God brings two witnesses to proclaim and say, you're all going to be judged if you do not do the following. Many prophecy teachers have identified these two witnesses as Moses and Elijah. I lean toward that. I'll tell you why. Some, over the centuries, historical brings these two pair, uh, uh, the pair of, uh, of Enoch and Elijah. Why? Because Enoch and Elijah are the only two that were taken to heaven without dying. Genesis 5, verse 24. 
Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So at the beautiful age of 365 years of age, God took him home. He didn't die. That's why some people think it's Enoch and Moses, I mean, and Elijah. Others suggest Jeremiah and Elijah, James and John, Peter and Paul. That would be an interesting couple. I'd call it the odd couple. Some say it's going to be current martyrs of that time. People have all kinds of things. But predominantly, people are going to go in two camps, Enoch and Elijah or Moses and Elijah. I stand from a clearest, simplest understanding of what I read in the Scripture. And I lean toward Moses and Elijah. Why? Because this is the significant passage for me. Both of these men reappeared at the transfiguration of Jesus. We see in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 6. Peter, James, John up there. Jesus is about to ascend into the cloud. And these two guys come on the scene and they have a nice personal conversation with Jesus. Now, your minds can go everywhere and say, what did they say? What did they talk about? Either way, they were called by God to come back to be there full force to see right there with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. See, the miraculous signs performed by these two witnesses that we see here, especially verses 5-6, they match up perfectly with Moses and Elijah of what they did. Moses turned water into blood and brought about plagues on the Egyptians. We see that in Exodus chapter 7 and chapter 11. Mark 9, verses 11-13, through 13, Jesus speaks of Elijah will be coming back. Elijah called down fire from heaven, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 10, and kept the heavens from raining for the same period of time of three, three and a half years. That we see back then, he did it, I believe he did it here in this, in this period of time of revelation. Another supporting verse is Malachi verse, chapter four, 4, verse 5, which states that Elijah will be sent again by God to Israel before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, which is speaking of the great tribulation. God seems to have a very special purpose for Moses' body. Why? Because in the scripture, in Jude 9, Michael, the archangel, fights with <laughs> the, the, Satan to dispute over the body of Moses so that he couldn't take Moses because Satan wanted to get not, you know, Moses not to be used by God, it appears. The enemies of Moses were destroyed by fire. We saw that in Numbers 16.35. Whatever you struggle with and decide on, okay, just make sure it's Moses and Elijah. No. <laughs> I better hurry up. Verse, verse 7. But what happens to these two witnesses? With all that power, God allows them to die. Notice here in verse 7 through 10. When they finished their testimony, the beast, Therion, is the word there. So it's not Satan's name. It's Antichrist, I believe, the beast. That ascends out of the bottomless pit, will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. 
So the two powerful witnesses are killed by the beast that ascends out of the abominable pit. Now again, who is, is it the Antichrist? It, it, but remember, it's a man empowered by Satan. Satan's involved in this. Some people just think it's just Satan. But I just look at it from an Antichrist perspective here. And you'll kind of, as we go through, you'll understand probably why. But their ministry wasn't cut short. Their ministry was stopped on God's perfect timing. He only needed to use them for the three and a half years to, to, to share the gospel, to reach the nation of Israel and those alive. And then when your ministry is done, then God says, it's done. Keep that in mind because it really gives us an understanding that God is in control of our lives. And we cannot be taken off of this earth until we finish our testimony. God is going to keep you alive. No one can take and stop your ministry and your testimony of who your life is until he says it's done, it's finished. Then you're out of here. You're going home. So when I see people who are passed before us and you see and you hear, Pastor, how could that happen? They were so young. They, were, they had so much, to, you know, they were doing for God and doing this. And, and where are they going to go from here and there? And you hear these things. Just remember the scripture, their ministry was done. Whatever they were doing for God is done. And God says it's time to, better to get them to come home than to stay on earth. And hopefully that brings you peace in your life to know their ministry, their testimony is done. There is a difference between a witness and giving testimony. Witness is not something we do. It is something we are. Giving testimony is what a witness does. Do you give out a testimony? Are you a witness? If you're not giving out your testimony, then you're not a witness for God. That simple. We all want to be a witness. Now what happened? Look at how bad this is, how dark this is. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. There in Jerusalem, right there. Their bodies, they're going to kill them, and they're going to lay there on those, on the, right there. For how long? We see that in verse 9. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Remember, even Islamic or Christian or Jews, Jews in Islam, I should say, they bury their, their, their dead within 24 hours. It's a sign of respect and honor. It's to 24 hours. They, they do not let it dwindle like ours for weeks, you know, waiting for things to be orchestrated. But it's so dark and so wicked in those days, they are going to allow those bodies to lay there for three and a half days and not let them be buried. So others are going to come try to bury them. No one is coming to the rescue to bury those bodies. God is not even going to allow it. Why? How do we know this? Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Not only are they going to be shocked the fact that these, that, 
the Antichrist, Satan, I, I'm not sure if they even know. They probably think it's just the army did it or the, 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 the powers that be took these out for three and a half days. Took them out. They didn't, they didn't mourn, they didn't do anything. They absolutely rejoiced and made merry and sending gifts to one another. How do you see a glimpse of that if you watch the news? When you see Islam kill someone, what do they do? They celebrate and they give candy and celebrate to one another, giving gifts. Happens today, it's going to be full-fledged in these days as well. The whole world will see, notice this, the, all the dwelling on the earth, the whole, this is going to be not just regional it's going to be, everyone is going to see this and they're going to celebrate. Why? Because these two prophets who are empowered by God were so bold in their testimony of who Jesus is and you need to repent or you're going to go to hell message, fire and brimstone kind of message. It was tormenting the souls of the people who wanted love darkness. They didn't want to hear it. It happens today. If you share the good news, you will torment some people in their souls. You may not know it, but they absolutely are tormented. The fact that you even walk into the room and the presence of God comes in, they, they exit from you. They want you out. They, they'll do whatever it can to get you to be squished. It happens today and it will happen so clearly in these dark days to these two witnesses. But they were filled with the Spirit, bold by God, to do what? It shows the city's name. It was a spiritually, it was called Sodom in Egypt. Why? Sodom speaks of wickedness, it speaks of immorality. Egypt speaks of idolatry, the oppression and slavery. The great spiritual death of the great city is a Babylon. It's the headquarters of the Antichrist. We see that in Revelation 16 all the way through. This is a dark time, and you see the dark response to death. But notice here, the whole world will rejoice. The preaching of these two powerful witnesses and their call to repentance will torment the souls of the people. Some have suggested the only way people on the earth will see this is, is through satellite link. We can see that. 50 years ago, when someone was reading this scripture, 50 years or earlier, would have never said, how is that going to happen? The whole world is going to see this. Today, 50 years later, we see clearly how satellites are going to link the entire world up, and everyone is going to see this event. Amazing. Can you see it? Worldwide broadcasts on the internet, on your phones, everything that says live from Jerusalem. Of course, CNN and CBS and ABC and all of them will be here in full force. I'm sure there's some saved that it work in that industry. But there won't be by then. They will be broadcasting. But love, don't you see God get the last word here? Look at this, verse 4, 11 through 14. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. 
And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. <laughs> you just celebrated. You were having sharing a presence, and everything else, like, look at this. Look at, they're just, look at, they're just, they're laying on the streets. Oh, they're just, you know, just, you know the talk. And then God breathes, breathes life in them, and they shake it up. Wow. Three and a half days on the cement was a lot, a little uncomfortable. But they rise up. That would bring fear. That would bring tremendous fear. Why? Because there is a God. You cannot ignore that there is a God. And you will face that now you understand what they've just been telling you that was tormenting you. It's coming true. And the wrath of God is coming. Verse 12, and they heard a loud voice from heaven. Notice that. After he raised after three and a half days, he brings life. They stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. And look at here. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, they, the two witnesses, come up here. They raptured up. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies, what? Saw them. These two witnesses not only speak of Jesus, demonstrated the life of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but he also, they were ascended into the cloud like their Savior. Come up here. Are you ready for when Jesus calls and says, come up here? And we're raptured. Are you ready? The earth has... The earth was not worthy of these two witnesses. So God said, that's it. Their testimony, their mission, their purpose on this world, on this life, is done. Bring them home. Verse 13, in the same hour. So it didn't pass by. We know exactly within the hour. There was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to God of heaven. <laughs> Within an hour. Did you see what I just saw? Did you? Like, how do you put that all together in your head? Except there is a God, and then he shakes the world. He shakes this great earthquake and takes out tenth of the city fell? 7,000? Right? A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people killed. Some great afraid and gave glory to God the heaven. The question is, were that a, a, a saving faith? Was that glory to God in a saving way? I, I don't know that. But it did bring them to an understanding there is a God. Just because you believe there's a God doesn't mean you're going to believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ, for your salvation. I know about God, you may say. I know about Jesus. But knowing about is not going to save you. 
See, understand, the witness and testimony of these two will be the last chance at this stage of the tribulation for people to come to Christ for salvation. And lastly, verse 14, the second woe is past. Guess what's next? The third woe. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And we'll pick that up when? Not today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your truth and the fact that we can understand it and see it and apply it into our lives of being ready for you to say, come up here. So I pray, Lord, for anyone here today that doesn't know you personally, has not surrendered their life to you, I pray today's the day of salvation for them. That they sense them, you knocking at the door of their heart, Lord, right now. And they're ready to surrender their life to you. They're ready to give up what they've been holding on to that's been destroying them. The emptiness. The darkness that they do. And they want you to come into their life and save them. And give them a new life. So I pray, Lord, you're speaking to their hearts very boldly right now and they're calling out in your name and asking and repenting and asking for the forgiveness of their sins to have eternal life. If anyone here is, Lord, speaking to you, just raise your hand. I won't call you out. I just want to know who God is speaking to you and just pray for you if God is working your life right now. Just raise your hands high enough so I can see and then you can put it right back down. For those online, if you're giving your life to Christ, just send a message to us. We want to send you a Bible. Is there anyone here today that God is speaking to to surrender their life to, to Jesus? To be changed? To have that assurity of eternal life? Father, we thank you. I pray that... Uh, Push back the enemy, Lord, if you're, the enemy is holding someone from taking that bold step of faith to surrender their life to you this morning. That they would come to the understanding and knowledge of the grace that you, a gift of grace that you're handing to them right now to be saved, to be transformed, renewed. they would desire to know you in a personal level, personal relationship with you. All of us, Lord, we desire a deeper relationship with you. To know you deeper, to follow you, to be obedient to your word, to abide in you. With great anticipation of come, for you coming and taking us home. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.